Hi, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about discovering the principles that govern life. This is part two of a two-part series. I hope you enjoy it. You know, last week I <clears throat> introduced the relationship between wisdom and the principles of life. And if you recall, I gave you Webster's definition uh, that says a principle is a comprehensive and fundamental law of life. And we said that the principles are not good or bad. They're not moral. They're true. And what's important to know is that the principles of life make life predictable. In other words, they create the potential for predictable outcomes. They give life order. And if you recall, I read these words from Stephen Covey. <clears throat> he says, principles apply at all times in all places. They surface in the form of values, ideas, norms, and teachings that uplift, ennoble, fulfill, empower, and inspire people. The lesson of history is that to the degree people and civilizations have operated in harmony with correct principles, they have prospered. At the root of societal declines are foolish practices that represent violations of correct principles. You cannot violate these fundamental principles with impunity. Whether we believe them or not, <clears throat> they have been proven effective throughout centuries of human history. And as I was thinking about uh, what to share this week, I, I was reminded of some words from one of Philip Yancey's old books called uh, Finding God in Unexpected Places. And he says, while much of the media was buzzing about a new survey on sex in modern America, which was released in 1994, <clears throat> I was thinking about a book, Sex and Culture, which was published in 1934. I discovered it in the windowless warrens of a large university library, and I felt like an archaeologist must feel unearthing an artifact from the catacombs. Seeking to test the Freudian notion that civilization is a byproduct of repressed sexuality, the scholar J.D. Unwin studied 80, he spent almost, not all of his life, but years of his life studying 86 different societies. His findings startled many scholars, above all Unwin himself, because all 86 demonstrated a direct tie between the absolute monogamy and the expansive energy of civilization. In other words, sexual fidelity was the single most important predictor of a society's ascendancy. Now what's interesting though is Unwin had no religious convictions and applied no moral judgments. He said this, I offer no opinion about rightness or wrongness. Nevertheless, he had to conclude in human records there is no instance of a society retaining its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition that does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial faithfulness. For Roman, Greek, Sumerians, Moorish, Babylonian, and Anglo-Saxon civilizations, Unwin had several hundred years of history to, history to draw on. He found with no exception that these societies flourished culturally and geographically during eras that valued sexual fidelity. Inevitably, sexual mores would loosen and the societies would subsequently decline, only to rise again when they returned to more rigid sexual standards. Unwin seemed at a complete loss to explain this pattern. He said, if you ask me why this is so, I reply, I do not know. He said, no scientist knows either. You can describe the process and observe it, but you cannot explain it. 
And then in the end, he goes on to say that, <clears throat> you know, Unwin's book rests in the catacombs of libraries because his research points to a truth that nobody today wants to hear. Now, the reason I share this is because maybe, just maybe, there is a principle at work here regarding sexuality. You know, go back and listen to Covey's words. The lesson of history is that the degree people and civilizations have operated in harmony with correct principles, they have prospered. And it makes you wonder, you know, where this leaves us as a culture. Because Unwin said, there are no exceptions to this. Now, last week, we looked at one single principle. Some call it the harvest. I called it, and I got it from Andy Stanley, the, the, the words, the principle of the path. Now, today we're going to consider three other principles that I think are crucial if you're going to have a healthy life. And I guess so the second principle, the first one was last week, the second principle uh, I want to lay out for you real briefly this morning. Hans Selye was a, a scientist from Canada who was the true pioneer in discovering the impact of emotions on a person's health. He wrote over 30 books on the subject, but his landmark book was called The Stress of Life. And in his research, he discovered a principle that he says is crucial if you're going to be emotionally healthy. And he had a fancy term for it. He called it altruistic egoism. But he said it's really nothing more than Jesus' or the, the biblical truth, helping others helps you. You know, in Luke 6, 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given unto you. In Acts 20, 35, we hear Jesus' words that are recorded. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But I love the way this principle is laid out by Solomon in Proverbs 11.25 when he says a generous man will prosper and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You see, Sell, you observed this principle at work in years and years of research. And he said when you contribute and enrich somebody else's life, you will find your own life enriched. The principle, therefore, in its simplest form is we receive in this life by giving, not by taking, by giving. You see, God designed the human heart to give, and we receive the greatest joy in this life when we give. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, this sounds kind of selfish. You know, give to others so you can receive. And I guess really what I'm saying to you is God, I believe, is telling us this is the way I've designed life. This is the way you will function best as a human being. And of course, if this is true, then the inverse of this principle is also true. Self-centeredness leads to a miserable life. There's an interesting new book that's come out, and I have not read it. It's called, it's titled, The Narcissism Epidemic. And it's written by two American psychologists. And this book's received a great deal of press. They were just recently, I know, on the Today Show. And they contend there has occurred a huge shift in our culture psychology. They call it, I quote, the relentless rise of narcissism. You see, a narcissist one is one who loves himself and is consumed with himself. And they say this epidemic of narcissism 
has resulted in people being more depressed, more discontent, more miserable than ever before. I don't know how many of you saw this article in the Wall Street Journal. Um, it was last Wednesday, and it's uh, titled, Boomers to This Year's Grads, We Are Really, Really Sorry. And it's, it's uh, uh, about all these commencement addresses that are being given by all these public figures who are in the baby boom generation, as, as, as most of us are. And let me just give you a sample. Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, who's 60 years old, told the graduating class of Butler University last month that boomers have been self-absorbed, self-indulgent, and all too often just plain selfish, and we sure are sorry. Greg Easterbrook has also written a, a very uh, insightful book that makes, and he's noticed this very same trend. And the, listen to the title of the book, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. You know, guys, I really believe and I do observe personally a pervasive discontentment and unhappiness in our land because too many people just live for themselves. And I believe what happens, it causes them to malfunction over time. And I guess I would ask you this morning, could this be true in your life? There's an interesting uh, story uh, that Scott Peck tells. Peck is a kind of unusual guy with uh, a lot of interesting beliefs, but uh, I'm not really sure where he is uh, as far as, uh, uh, as a Christian. But he, he's a famous psychologist, and he, uh, he tells of a woman patient who was suffering from extre extreme depression. And he said one day when she was due for an appointment with him, she called on the telephone and told him that her car had broken down. Dr. Peck offered to pick her up on his way into work. But he explained to her that he had to make a hospital call before he got to the office. If she was willing to wait in the car while he made the call, they could have the appointment. And then she agreed. When they got to the hospital, he had another suggestion. He gave her the name of two of his patients who were convalescing there and told her that each of them would enjoy a visit from her. When they met again an hour and a half later, the woman was on an emotional high. She told Dr. Peck that making the visits and trying to cheer up those patients had lifted her spirits and that she was feeling absolutely wonderful. Dr. Speck, Dr. Peck responded by saying, well, now we know how to get you out of your depression. Now we know the cure for your problem. The woman stopped and looked at him and said, you don't expect me to do that every day, do you? Now, isn't that interesting? When you refresh others, it says you yourself will be refreshed. When you enrich the lives of others, it will enrich your life. You know, I think this approach to life also impacts our work, guys, um, and our careers. You know, the Bible is clear. The purpose of work is not to get rich. That's the approach most people take. I want to work hard, and I want to get rich. But the word work that's used in the scriptures literally means to make yourself useful to others. Your approach to work is, how can I serve you? How can I contribute to your life through the service that I provide, through the work that I do? Bob Buford, who wrote the book, Halftime, that has had such an impact on my life, believes this is why men who retire to a life of leisure often struggle with emptiness and a sense of purposelessness. He believes when you retire, you shouldn't retire from just work. You should shift to a new work or to a new service. I like the way one author put it. 
He says, as a believer, as a Christian, our lives should be like a river. He says, you know, you, you, you look at a river. A river receives water from the high mountains and then sends that water into the valley below. He said, we should receive our power from God above and then give it out to the hurting world around us. And then he goes on to say, if we don't, we'll be like a stagnant pond. We'll be like the Dead Sea. And I think that easily can happen in the life of a believer. You know what happens to the Dead Sea? It's below sea level. Water flows into it, but it can't flow out. And I think so easily we receive all kind of input into our lives spiritually, but there's no outflow. There's no giving. And he says when that happens, you will basically, you will be dead. You will be like that stagnant pond. So the principle is give and it will be given unto you. Now this next principle that, that I'm going to share with you, I want to take a few minutes to kind of lay it out because it's, uh, it's very paradoxical. Um, you know, one of the most meaningful and significant ideas for all human, being, human beings is the concept of freedom. You know, and this, of course, was the core idea on which our country was founded. Freedom from oppression, freedom, uh, religious freedom, freedom of opportunity, freedom to own land, freedom to own property. But it was always freedom within the restraints of the law. But what's happened in the last 50 years is that we have tried to apply the concept to freedom, of freedom to every area of life. Back in 1983, Time Magazine had a special edition celebrating 60 years as a publication. And it was titled, Those Amazing 60 Years. And it began with the words, The Adam was unsplit, and so were most marriages. And then there was a, a main essay that was titled, What Really Mattered Over the Last 60 Years? What Has Really Mattered? And the author said, In order to understand the last 60 years, you need to understand the idea that characterized the age. And he said it was the idea of freedom. Freedom in an absolute sense. This is a, a quote from the magazine. The fundamental idea that, Mer that America represented corresponded to the values of the times. America was not merely free. It was freed and unshackled. The image was of something previously held in check, an explosive force of a country that moved about in random particles of energy, yet at the same time gained power and prospered. To be free was to be modern. To be modern was to take chances. The American century was to be the century of unleashing, of breaking away at first from the 19th century and eventually from any constraints at all. Behind most of the events of the last 60 years lay the assumption, almost a moral imperative, that what was not free ought to be free and that limits were intrinsically evil. Now, you know, we've seen... If this is true, and I believe it is, I, we've seen a real shift in our country where more and more Americans have come to believe that freedom means the absence of restraints in your life so that you could do outwardly what you desire inwardly. But you know what? 
I think we've also clearly seen that this modern view of freedom clearly doesn't work. I mean, it breaks down. In fact, the failure of this model of freedom, I think, explains why people's lives aren't working in a culture that seems to have everything. Again, I'm going to quote from Philip Yancey. He saw this in the life of his own brother. He said, you know, I had a brother that was one of the most gifted musicians that, that I've ever seen. He played the piano. He said he could have been a very famous concert pianist. He said, but my older brother demonstrated what could happen if I chose to leave everything behind to be free. In an attempt, in an attempt to break the shackles of a confining upbringing, he went on a grand quest for freedom, trying on worldviews like changes of clothing, Pentecostalism, atheistic existentialism, Buddhism, New Age spirituality, Thomistic rationalism. He joined the flower children of the 1960s, growing his hair long and wearing granny glasses, living communally, experimenting with sex and drugs. For a, for a time, he sent me these exuberant reports of his new wonderful life. But eventually, however, a darker side crept in. I had to bail him out of jail when an LSD trip went bad. He broke relations with every other person in the family and burned through several marriages. I got late night suicide calls. Watching my brother, I learned that apparent freedom can actually mask deep bondage, a cry from the heart of unmet needs. The most musically gifted person I have ever known ended up tuning pianos, not playing them on a concert stage. I saw up close the destructive power of unrestrained freedom. Now, from this you see the competing desires in the human heart. You see here, Yancey's brother is a great example. He greatly desired to be a concert pianist. He had the talent, but he also wanted a life of unrestrained freedom. You know, to be a great musician, it requires unbelievable hours of practice every day which is a problem because it would have been a restriction and limit on his freedom. He wouldn't have been free. That's why Tim Keller says, sometimes you have to deliberately lose your freedom to gauge in some things in order to, re to release yourself to a richer kind of freedom, which leads me to the third principle. In order to truly be free, you sometimes have to give up your freedom. You see, our wants and desires are so, they so often collide, and it's critical to discover which of my desires are liberating and which ones are destructive. Therefore, it's crucial to determine which of my desire, desires are aligned with who I really am, you know, those desires that really <coughs> enhance my life. A number of years ago, I, uh, I saw a guy give a, an illustration to a bunch of teenagers that I've never forgotten. He had a group of teenagers about this size, and he had a big table. And he, he brought in this small little goldfish bowl that had water in it and a, had a single goldfish in it. And he put it on the table. And the goldfish seemed to be nice and content in his little bowl of water. And then the guy put his hand in there, picked up the goldfish, and put him on the table. And where he, before he'd been in, confined to this one about a, 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 a foot wide and foot deep, 
goldfish bowl, he, he flipped and flopped all over that table. I mean, then he flipped off the table onto the floor and he probably went 15 feet. And then, of course, he lay there not moving, dying because he, was, he had no oxygen. But the guy made an interesting point. He, and he asked those students, was the fish really free when he took him out of the bowl? He was in this little confined little place. He took him out. Was he really free when he, when he let him go and put him on the table? You see, there was a, a restriction. The fish could only be free in water. Because what makes a fish perfect in water is the way he's designed. He has gills that absorb oxygen from the water. He has fins which move him comfortably and precisely through the water, but obviously not on land. So what is the environment that the fish experiences freedom? Water. Though it is restricted in water, it is also in water where a fish can really soar. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is the environment that a person experiences freedom? What is the water he soars in where he is truly liberated? Well, just as we consider the design of a fish, we need to look at our design, the way God designed us. And in Genesis 1.26, we're told, first and foremost, that we are designed in the image of God. In other words, we have a personality and emotions just as God does. We have the ability to think, reason, and be creative just as God does. We are relational beings just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are. They've been in relationship throughout eternity. You know, if we weren't relational, we'd never get lonely. And loneliness plagues humanity. And finally, we love because he first loved us. We love because he is a God of love. But this is the problem. You know, 14 years ago yesterday, I woke up for the first time a married man. We got married 14 years ago on Wednesday, this past Wednesday. But you know what I, you realize the day you wake up on your, uh, on your honeymoon, the day after you get, you realize, you know, I'm not free anymore. When you're single, you pretty much can do what you want to do. You can, you, know, you, do, you can make unilateral decisions. But I, how many of you this week, I know I have, somebody may have said something to you and you say, well, let me run it by my wife. You see, when it gets right down to it, if you want a life without restrictions, you can't ever love. You can't ever be in a committed relationship. And yet, love is, according to Scripture, is the essence of life. That's what we want. That's where we're truly liberated. That's what really enhances our life. But to love, you have to give up your freedom. Now, the Bible also has a second clue about our design. And that's another, a major part of this. In Colossians 1.16, we're told all things have been created by him and for him. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says we have been called to live in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And the amplified, that word fellowship is the word companionship. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it's a real lengthy verse, but right in the middle of that verse is this phrase. It says, we exist for him. We exist for him. You know, just as fish were made for water, we were made for God. We were designed to live in a love relationship with him. In one sense, to fail to do that is to be like a fish out of water. But then again, I would say this, in order to enter into this relationship, you have to give up your freedom. In other words, he desires to be Lord of your life. In fact, this is a great question that we each need to ponder. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life, who is he in your life? Where does he fit into the hierarchy of your heart's affections? You know, the scripture is very clear. Jesus is a king. He is a perfect king. And when he rules in a person's life, there is harmony. Because he's the only king that will set you free. He will set you free from the fear of death, which the Bible says we are slaves to all of our lives. He will set us free from the fears of life, from self-centeredness, from pride, from greed. He's a liberator. But in order to be free, you have to give up your freedom. In other words, you have to let him be your king. Which is a perfect segue really into the last principle that I want to talk about. <clears throat> now the Bible does not use this term that I'm getting ready to use. Because I got it from Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. But it's a great principle. And he calls it the hedgehog principle. If you read his book, you know the principle. I'm just going to read it to you. It's, 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 it's fascinating. I think it's right on. He says, are you a hedgehog or are you a fox? In his famous essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox, Isaiah Berlin divided the world into hedgehogs and foxes based upon an ancient Greek parable. The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. The fox is a cunning creature, able to devise a myriad of complex strategies for sneak attacks upon the hedgehog. Day in and day out, the fox circles the hedgehog's den, waiting for the perfect moment to pounce. He's fast, sleek, beautiful, fleet of foot, and crafty. The fox looks like the sure winner. The hedgehog, on the other hand, is a doughtier creature, looking like a genetic mix-up between a porcupine and a small armadillo. He waddles along, going about his simple day, searching for lunch and taking care of his home. The fox waits in cunning silence at the juncture in the trail. The hedgehog, minding his own business, wanders right in the path of the fox. Aha, I've got you now, thinks the fox. He leaps out, bounding across the ground, lightning fast. The little hedgehog, sensing danger, looks up and thinks, well, here we go again. Will he ever learn? Rolling up into a perfect little ball, the hedgehog becomes a sphere of sharp, sharp spikes, pointing outward in all directions. The fox, bounding towards his prey, sees the hedgehog defense and calls off the attack. Retreating back to the forest, the fox begins to calculate a new line of attack. Each day, some version of this battle between the hedgehog and the fox takes place, and despite the greater cunning of the fox, the hedgehog always wins. Berlin extrapolated from this little parable to divide people into two basic groups, fox and hedgehogs. Foxes pursue many ends at the same time, and they see the world in all its complexity. 
They are scattered, they're diffused, they're busy, always moving on many levels, says Berlin, and they never integrate, never integrating their thinking into one overall concept or unifying vision. Hedgehogs, on the other hand, simplify a complex world into a single organizing idea, a basic principle or concept that unifies and guides everything. It doesn't matter how complex the world, a hedgehog reduces all challenges and dilemmas to simple, indeed almost simplistic hedgehog ideas. For a hedgehog, anything that does not somehow relate to the hedgehog idea holds no relevance. Princeton professor Marvin Bressler pointed out the power of the hedgehog during one of our conversations. He says, you know what separates those who make the biggest impact in life from all others who are just as smart? He says, they're hedgehogs. Now, this is the question I want to lay before you this morning. Do you have one thing in the core of your life that unifies and guides everything else? And if so, can you identify it? There's a great article in this month's Christianity Today uh, on Tim Keller and the, the church that he founded up in New York City, Redeemer, Pres Redeemer Presbyterian, 20 years ago. And in the article, he, he, he speaks of a businessman, uh, which was fairly a typical uh, New Yorker that came to one of his services and then continued to come back, came to a Bible study. And Keller asked him, what's led you to this point of coming, of seeking? He said, I quote, I realized that I did not have a spiritual center in my life. And therefore, I really did not know what I was living for. You see, what you see is in this, this man's life, it was very complex, very confusing, very busy up there in that big city. He was looking for coherence, something that would unify and guide his life. And what he realized was he was like a fox. And he didn't understand who he was or what he was living for. And as I was preparing this, I went back to, to Stephen Covey's book on the seven habits. And he says, we all have a personal center in our lives. But this is what's interesting, and this is a quote. He says, whatever is at the center of our life will be the source of our security, guidance, our wisdom, and our power. And you know, you can see how money can easily make its way to the center. Because we falsely believe that money can purchase security, guidance, wisdom, and power. We can either go purchase it or hire it. And that's why I'm here this morning to submit to you that Jesus, and only Jesus, is adequate and worthy to be the personal center of your life because he and only he can pull it all together so that you have real harmony and real coherence in your life and he promises I'll never desert you I'll never forsake you and I will walk with you through this life there was an interesting article written by Jill Caratini she works with Robbie Zacharias 
And this is, I love what she says here. She says, during my first year in college, I was convinced that a beginning ballet class was just what I needed to lighten a heavy course load. Little did I know, however, that my ballet professor would embody a militant will to snap easy A-seeking students in two with her Herculean strength of her well-trained legs. She would say, find your sit bones, repeatedly. She it continued to thunder, pacing through her rows of frightened freshmen. Finding your sit bones, that's S-I-T-B-O-N-E-S, Finding your sit bones was the term she used for drawing from the strength of proper alignment. Named for their location, one's sit bones are apparently an essential part of ballet. We learned of their importance daily. She defined the finding of one's sit bones as an epiphany. With the sit bones in place, ballet makes sense, she would say. One's sit bones were one's center, she would explain. To find them is to find the heart of ballet. And then she would add quite dramatically, you can dance without it, but you will never learn to love the dance. And that was always quite a line for 8 o'clock in the morning. But then she reflects on her ballet class back in college, and she says, I wonder if life is something like this. Could there be something at the heart of life that renders it all to make sense? And how many of us are running through life never really getting it, disconnected from the center, disconnected from the source of life itself? You know, I, I think I've shared this before. You know, C.S. Lewis has had you know, a dramatic impact on so many people's lives through his writings. But, you know, I, I've enjoyed reading several books on his life, his personal life. And he was a remarkable Christian. He really was. And he, this, is what really got, this is what really made sense to him, this idea of, of Christ at the center because he believed until you allow Christ to be the personal center in your life, you'll never find out who you really are, nor will you ever experience life as God intended it. And he got this, and so much of his life focus was on Matthew 10, 39, where Jesus says, whoever loses his life, gives up his life, surrenders his life, whoever loses his life for my sake, that's when he'll find himself. That's when he'll find it. He'll find his life. Lewis said, I quote, When one's relationship to God is given first place, everything else, including our earthly loves and pleasures, increases. When I've learned to love God more than my earthly desires and pleasures, he says, then I will enjoy my earthly desires better than I do now. He says, when the earthly desires and pleasures of life come before God, I move towards a state where they become meaningless. When first things are put first, secondary things are not suppressed. He says, paradoxically, they increase. Now, what's so interesting is that Lewis, in his search for spiritual truth, he moved from atheism to theism to Christianity. And he said, this is kind of interesting, he said he thought he was finally coming to the place of truth only to find that the truth itself was a person. 
Jesus. And in Jesus, he found the one person who could unify and guide his life. In essence, he had found the very center from which all of life flows. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the coherence you give to this life and that you and only you are worthy to be that unifying, guiding presence at our core. Help us to see, Lord, how vital it is to put you in the center and then to follow you all the days of our life. We do thank you, Lord, for the principles of life that you have designed and woven into our existence. I pray that you'd give us the wisdom to live in harmony with these principles, that we might walk through life with you, with our eyes on you, as our divine guide, as our shepherd, as our Lord, as our Heavenly Father. I thank you for these men. I thank you for the friendships in this room. We're grateful for this church that's hosted us today. And thank you for, for that. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.